In just 48 hours, TopTel can provide the world-class AI and tech experts you need to optimize your business and stay competitive in 2024 and beyond. To get started, visit TopTel.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. I'm Constance Schwartz, co-founder and partner of Smack Entertainment, which stands for Sports, Music, and Culture, which sums up the last 25 years of my career, the National Football League, the firm, and manager of Snoop Dogg. I think that the opportunities for young women today are endless. We have, I think, 80% women working in our company. And I also feel like that's relevant for women now, and it was back then. Like, if you're the best person for the job, it shouldn't matter if you're race, your gender, anything like that. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Constance Schwartz is a partner and co-founder of Smack Entertainment, and she says she can handle anything. Constance spent a decade in the early 90s working as a marketing and branding executive at the Ultimate Boys Club, the NFL. From there, she went on to join the firm, a high-profile artist and talent management company. She ultimately joined forces with retired NFL Hall of Famer Michael Strahan to launch Smack Entertainment, a talent management company spanning sports, music, and cinema. Constance says working her way up in the NFL provided her with the bring-it-on attitude she needs when making deals or working in Hollywood. So, Constance, I read you were raised by a single mom, and you attribute a lot of your success to her. What did she teach you? My mom will be 92 years old this January, and she had me very late in life, and she always called me her gift from God. And I think that's probably part of my success is that, in her eyes, I could do no wrong. (laughs) So she gave me the self-confidence that I don't think I would have ever been able to attain without her full belief in me. You worked for the NFL for 10 years and you rose up the ranks quickly. What's the secret to succeeding in a male-dominated industry? The secret to succeeding in a male-dominated industry is don't really think about it. You know, I think the secret to any success is work hard and it really does pay off. You might not see it at that moment in time. And for me, every obstacle or challenge I faced, I used it as the battery in my back just to prove that I was great, not as a woman, not as a man, but just great as the employee that company. What's an obstacle you faced? One of the uh, one of the obstacles that I faced when I was at the NFL was a couple different instances when I was um, an assistant. Different men were come in, would come in over my position, and I would have to train them and teach them what I was doing. And obviously, knew they were getting paid way more than me, and didn't have to do the entry-level nonsense as an assistant, which I'm so happy that I started out there because the rest of my career, I never treated an assistant the way I didn't want to be treated, if that makes sense. And I'll never forget the folks that always looked down upon me or never said hello when they were walking into my boss's offices and things like that. So how did you deal with that when they you know, would bring in guys over you and you had to train them? And I would cuss a lot behind their backs. Um, no. Um, well, yeah, that is true. And I just really focused, worked harder, and never let them walk all over me, you know, because they weren't my boss. They were just brought in higher than me. So I did what I had to do. I taught them because it wasn't their fault. You know, good for them for being a part of the Lucky Sperm Club and, you know, having parents that had connections. And so I just would work with them, teach them. And it actually helped me out because when the time came that we were both presenting to our boss, they were the first ones to say Constance was the one responsible for this, which I'm very grateful to them for that. So you worked at the NFL and the NFL has had issues with sexual harassment and domestic violence. And so when you were there, 
there or in your career at all have you dealt with sexual harassment? I was very lucky not to have dealt with sexual harassment at the NFL. Um, that came in, in different career careers and I mean different jobs in different places and not necessarily always people that I worked with. The one thing I have to say about the NFL, the people that respected me the most were the players. I'm very grateful to all of those guys because they treated me as an equal and it's because of many of those guys that I learned to play golf through their encouragement. I know that they probably signed the extra footballs because we asked nicely and I think it, it's not just about athletes or anything like that or entertainers but as long as you respect one another and treat somebody as an equal you'll get so much further than you know going into it with a different attitude. Do you think the league is doing enough when it comes to domestic violence? I do. I'm very close to many people that still work there. One of my best friends is a senior vice president and she's, we started out together in 91 and they've brought in a lot of executives who come from that space to help train and teach and things like that. So you said you dealt with harassment, not at the NFL, but later on in your career. What are some instances that you might share? The typical, um, when I first moved out to Hollywood and work in the entertainment industry, I remember I was at the Havana Club with a bunch of the guys I worked with, and they're like, oh, how do you think, you know, how are you handling work, you know, being in a boys' club like this? And I literally started laughing at them, not with them, at them. And I said, a boys' club? Try working at the NFL as a 21-year-old young girl coming out of college. I said, you're not a boys' club. I said, you guys might think you are, and you can sit here and giggle and things like that. And I think sometimes guys test you, and and not just even in entertainment or sports, but any field, that they're going to test you to see how far they can go, and you just have to either push back or just act completely disinterested and look at them like the fool that they are. And is that what you did? Kind of Absolutely. Ignore them. <laughs> I know you've had a long relationship with Snoop Dogg, and he said he's changed his views on women. But when you were working with him back in the day, he had some really derogatory things he said about women. And so I'm just wondering how you dealt with that. So when I started managing him, I was not a manager. I worked at the firm as a branding and strategic marketing executive, and I was on his team, no different than Enrique Iglesias or Kelly Clarkson. And so when I became his manager, it was about two months into him being in our company, and he said he wants the girl from the NFL as his manager. And I was like, I'm not a manager. And they were like, you are now, and you'll figure it out. And I never looked up again until I ended up not managing him any longer. And one of our first meetings where it was just like he and I and getting into, you know, the focus, the path, and things like that. And I said, I understand that your songs and lyrics are reflective of society, how you grew up, and what you see. But I'm telling you right now, if you ever refer to me as a bitch or a I'm done. And he laughed. And that, I think, was the beginning of a very strong relationship that still goes on. I stopped managing him when I turned 40, only because I wanted my life back. And about a year ago, when he was a guest on our game show, we produced $100,000 Pyramid, he said I wanted to bring back Joker's Wild. And I said, if you're serious about it, I'm in. And he said, I am. And so we're on air right now on TBS. And I'm really proud of that. So he's not only not a client, but he's a you know a producing partner, but he's a really good friend. His wife's one of my best friends. And uh, so that stayed on. But to go back to your question about his misogyny, lyric when people would say to me how do you work for him I'd say there's a lot of things in a movie or a TV show or radio that I don't like change the channel that's the end of it like so many artists people think write their own lyrics they all don't write the lyric or the songs or things like that so again he was singing about what was reflective in his world in society at that time sounds like to work in some of the places you've worked had to develop a, a level of toughness or resilience and I'm just wondering where you got that from and how I'm you from Yonkers <laughs> I mean I'm joking but I'm not joking so I didn't understand like growing up at the time in Yonkers that that would really give me this strength and, and there's a joke like YO for life and you 
you can take the girl out of Yonkers, but you can't take the Yonkers out of the girl. And and that's where I really started. And then I went to SUNY Oswego. And, you know, during my time there, I was like, oh, these kids at Syracuse would be like, you're the SUNY kids. And I was like, that's right. I'm a SUNY kid. And so it was like a badge of honor for me, not just the Yonkers part of it, but then the SUNY part of it. So I heard you say you have a bring it on attitude. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so I think the bring it on attitude is the fact that the majority of my career has been spent with working successfully with rappers and athletes. And Aaron Andrews. So Aaron falls into that category, even though she's a, you know, a female broadcaster, but she's got the bring it on attitude, which is what brought us together. So it's just going into a situation and not having fear. I mean, I have more fear sitting here with you than I do going into a boardroom filled with men or to a rap music video, you know, in the inner city at two o'clock in the morning. So it's just addressing a challenge and going for it. What was it like to work with Aaron during some of the tough times she's been through? Aaron and I were friends before we started working together. So it truly was more of a girlfriend than the manager situation. And so it really was was just being there for her, no different than I would have been there for, you know, one of my best friends that I don't work with. And just putting myself in her position because we both work in male-dominated industries and truly trying to be objective and subjective, I guess, at the same time through it. And it was a lot of, you know, late night phone calls every day after the trial because I would just be riveted in watching it in the office so I could see what the world was seeing and talking with her and her parents and just being there. And then when the cancer scare happened, she was like, look, I don't want to miss any work. I'm not missing the Green Bay game. And I said, let's do it. You know, if you need to take any time off, no one's going to question you for it. She's like, I need to be there for my own sanity and health and, and wellness. So I'm so proud of her. You said you were terrified to start your own company. How come? Oh, my gosh. Terrified. And it's interesting because so many people around me, including my mom, all had told me, you know, growing up, and when I say growing up, I mean in my career, that I had this entrepreneurial spirit. But in the early 90s, you know, when the internet was really just starting, unless you read the Wall Street Journal, you didn't, I think, understand what an entrepreneur was, you know, at the entry level and things like that. And so it was those around me, friends, business partners, mentors, advisors, even my trainer would always say, you need to have your own company. And I was like, but I'm afraid, you know, you're just so used to like showing up at an office, knowing you're getting a paycheck, no wonder, no matter what your deliverables were and things like that. And the way I, you know, finally got over my, my fear was it was just kind of circumstantial in that because I was blessed and fortunate enough to have spent, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s at the NFL in the 90s and then really in entertainment in 2000, I was trying to figure out what my next step was. And every interview I took, people just wanted to put me in a box. Well, you're, you know, really good at sponsorships. You're good at this. You're good at that. And I said, but the future of the world is being able to take all these things and put them under one roof. And it was almost like someone just kicked me off, you know, in my pants and just said, jump the plank, you're doing it. And that's kind of how it happened. How did you figure that out, that the sort of the future was going to be this convergence of all these elements? I'm a big gut person. You know, I wish I could say I had like all these analytics and did some tests and studies, but it was really just from my experiences and my gut and just seeing where the world was going and people, every time I'd be in a meeting, they'd say the convergence of, you know, sports and music and entertainment and sports. I was like, what are you talking about? You know, like my job was sports and entertainment at the NFL. And it made me realize how amazing of an experience it was growing up at the NFL because we did, you know, these decks. And nobody knew what a deck was when I came into the music business and, and, you know, different things like that. Or in 2001, musicians weren't into endorsements and strategic marketing and branding and things like that. So that's why I stayed at a record company for a little less than a year because they just didn't understand it. And now that's probably one of the most coveted positions in this business. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. 
OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet, oracle.com slash wallstreet. The future of everything from the Wall Street Journal. Technology and superstorms. Digital money. What's next for retail and fighting superbugs? Join me, Jennifer Strong, as I examine how science and technology are influencing our lives today, tomorrow, and beyond. The Future of Everything from The Wall Street Journal, Season 2. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. So from your time at the NFL, you learned a lot of skills. And I'm imagining there's some women listeners hearing this and saying, OK, I work at a big company. I eventually want my own business. How can they learn from the company they're at and then use that information to parlay that into their business? Like, what can they sort of, quote unquote, take from their corporate experience that would apply for entrepreneurship? Treat the company like it's your own. Every time you're going, you know, to submit an expense account or you're going to order more paper or, you know, do you really need to book that seat in first class? Things like that. Do you need to stay at the Four Seasons? Can you stay, you know, at a lesser hotel? Those are just so basic, but those principles are what's applied here now. And I'm so, at the time, I didn't realize it, like all the budgets I had to do and all the staff meetings and even just being in charge of forecasts and the expenses and staffing and, and all these like things that are minutia now are such a core part of the success of our business because we run a lean, mean machine. And I teach that, I call them all my kids that work at SMAC, but I teach that to the kids because, you know, they'll say, well, we want to do this. I'm like, okay, but just remember there's one pot of money so if we spend it here that's going to come out of your bonuses at the end of the year and they're like oh forget it I'm like you know so minor but major what advice do you have for women who want to build up their own personal brand I always question do we have a personal brand it's a tough answer in that it, a lot of times when I get asked this question also just because you have a million Twitter followers doesn't mean you're a success it, it's you know if you're posting something and you get a million people looking at it if only five of them are buying what you're selling then what good are the, having all those followers and I think that's how you can compare to this personal brand you know quote unquote because who you are I guess is your personal brand and and that's sort of more where I focus is how do I want to be treated? It's a lot of, you know, like the golden rule, like, and just what's my legacy? I don't have my own children. I have two amazing stepchildren. But I always think about that is what's the legacy that I'm going to leave behind for the world because I'm not going to have my own children, you know, that you know are going to keep your yearbooks and your, all your credentials and things like that. And and that's what's important to me. And I think if you're going to say what's your personal brand, how do you want to be remembered? Did you have to make some trade-offs for your career versus personal life? You do. I did. You know, I grew up watching uh, That Girl and the Mary Tyler Moore show and, you know, thinking you can have it all. And some people can. For me, some advice that I give to a lot of young women, freeze your eggs. You know, look into that because I ended up in a, an older place where it's just, I think, probably too late and it's just an insurance package. So I always say if that's something that your company contributes towards or insurance, you know, look into it because it's just a good option to have. So I didn't get married until I was a lot later in life. And I think a big part of it was because my careers have been so crazy and my priority and traveling the world, it, it took a really strong man to be my partner in life. And we didn't, you know, meet until I was in my mid, early 40s. So 
How come the entertainment industry can be so cutthroat? I think everything's so cutthroat. Like I have friends in fashion and finance and you kind of hear the same stories. And that's one of the, I think, pieces of advice I always try to give, which is you're always going to have a select few bad seeds in whatever industry you're in. And you just really have to seek out the people that are of like minds like you and keep your friends close and your frenemies closer. The gut, I think, is a lot of it. But you find out pretty quickly because between social media and the internet and just people wanting to be the one, I think you find out pretty quickly that people show their true colors. I've heard you tell clients that sometimes you need to turn down certain opportunities, even if they might be offered, say, million-dollar contracts. How come? So when that first happened, it was with Michael Strahan, and we weren't partners yet. I was managing him, and he had a very lucrative offer on the table. And I said, I get it. This is a huge check for you. I said, it's a huge check for me. And if I'm telling you not to take it, I need the money way more than you need it. So there's a reason. And he was really, he's very smart and he was very intuitive. And he said, explain to me why though. So I'm, I'm sure I understand. I said, every move you make, there's three or four steps down the road that are going to play off of this. I said, so if you partner with this brand, do you think this is going to help you reach this goal? And he was like, no. I said, do you think it could hurt that goal? He said, yes. I said, so there's the answer. So are you suggesting we should have like more of a plan? I I wish I could say yes, absolutely. <laughs> but I certainly, when I was younger, I didn't have the long-term plan in the sense that, oh, I'm going to do 10 years at the NFL, then go to entertainment, and then in my 40s have my own company. It just happened that way that each decade was a different part of my career. But the one thing that I've always, always done, and listen to my Uncle Frank on this one, which was max out your 401k plan. Like Those are the goals and plans I think everybody should have, is anytime you can just save money without it impacting your bottom line, you need to do that. I heard the mantra of your company is hustle like you're broke. <laughs> Tell us why. <laughs> So coming with a business partner like Michael Strahan, it's easy for somebody like him to just sit back and say, oh, we don't have to work so hard. We don't have to work so hard. But we're both grinders and we both hustle like we're broke. You know, when we started this company, we don't have outside investors, any debt, thankfully. And we operate it, though, always like we're going out of business. You don't know how long you're going to have you know, this kind of heat for with your clients, with your productions, with your clothing lines, things like that. And so we always try to operate like hustle like you're broke. You make a lot of deals for clients. What's the best negotiation advice you can give to women? Take a deep breath. I don't mean just one time. It's okay to pause in a room on the phone and think things through and never make a decision when you're emotional. It's fine to tell somebody you're going to get back to them. It's fine to say we can agree to disagree. And it's fine to ask for help. We have great agents and lawyers around us. So I don't know everything. And that's why I try to surround myself with people smarter than I am. I also heard you might tell a client to try out for an opportunity because they've got nothing to lose. I'm wondering, do you think that's generally good advice for women who are thinking of trying something new? Obviously, it depends what it is. And when we say try something out, we mean an audition, like not go take a job, you know, where you're going to have long-term ramifications that if it doesn't go well, but go take that coffee, go take that meeting, go meet somebody that you might not think you have anything in common with or that you can learn something from because you never know. I mean, the majority of my contacts today are people I met in my 20s at the NFL, and I've nurtured and maintained those relationships. And there's also been multiple times that I was, you know, on my way to a meeting, like huffing and puffing because I'm so busy like everybody else. And I got there and focused, you know, and really like dive in into the moment and be present. And some of those are partners that we have today. How do you nurture those long-term relationships? I'm a big fan of the phone call. <laughs> I think we all get too caught up in texting and emailing and it's just so impersonal. And we are all busy and I get it. But we can all take time to, you know, just keep a phone sheet of people that you like to stay in touch with. And once a month, drop a call in. I live between New York and 
LA back and forth a lot. And there are times where I don't have time to see a bunch of different people for a dinner. So I'll send a note out and say, hey, everybody, you know, I know you might not all know each other, this and that, but you're all good people because I wouldn't put you together. I'm having a dinner this night, hope you can all come. And it's it's fun for me to be able to see my connections all become, you know, friends, whether personally or professionally. What does your new husband think of all this? He's in technology and software. And so he thinks we're all crazy in this entertainment and sports world, but he does love it at the same time. And he's super supportive. And actually, it was his idea to have Michael Strahan be our minister when we got married. So Michael was officiated in Turks and Caicos. And so, you know, I think one of the main reasons I waited so long to, you know, get married and be with the right person was you have to find a strong partner, male, female, whatever it is, friends or not friends, in order to have your back because life is tough, you know, and it's just whether it's it's your job or whether it's just, you know, the daily grind of, of just life, it's really important that you make each other better. There's good times, there's bad times, you know, personally and professionally. So how involved are you in managing the finances of your business? It's very funny. Um, I'm so involved. I was literally, before we walked in here, just emailing our business managers, you know, end of year meetings for next week and going through the weekly reports that I get on everything. And that that's one of the things, as a business owner, you can't ever allow anyone, you can't rely on, or trust anyone to treat your finances or treat your, you know, P&L like it's theirs because it's not. It just isn't. And as great of a job as people will do, people make mistakes. And so I look at everything with a fine-tooth comb, not just professionally, but personally. Like I have the bank accounts open every day to check and see because you never know with credit card, you know, fraud or just bank fraud and people's information leaking out. So if something happens, that's my fault. I can't blame anybody else. What type of investor are you? In my 20s, I did a few very small, you know, stock investments because friends like, you have to do this. And of course, both ended up tanking, losing money. And I steered clear from the stock market for quite some time. But I also was in the process of building this company, so it was like everything we were making was going into it. So for me, I'm a big um, fan of investing in real estate. I was lucky enough in my early 30s to buy a condo when I moved out to LA, and we just sold it because we were moving into our house, and it doubled in the time that I was living there. So I would say the more real estate people can buy, the better off you are. Because I also, there's a, there's a there was a house, a summer house that the girls did in Zag Harbor in the 90s, and the owner was selling it, and it was $300,000, and it was a huge piece the land in Sag Harbor. I'm like, it's just too expensive. We can't afford it. And now I think it was worth $7 million. I'm like, oh my gosh, we should have like scrapped and saved and begged every, you know, family member and went for loans. But we just, you know, we didn't know. No one told us back then how important that is. I heard you and Michael like to say when, not if, when it comes to success. How has that helped you? Unbeknownst to us, you know, when we met in the early 90s, my mom's saying was, if you want something, claim it and it's yours. And his father told him when, not if. And so everything we've done is when we start Smack Entertainment, when we have five shows on the air, when we're in season two and season three. And those things are all happening. And it doesn't mean they're always going to happen, but I think so much of life is about your attitude and your energy. You know, the name of his book was Wake Up Happy, which I came up with, because no matter what, the day is going to bring you, you have to wake up happy. It might not end happy, but you have to start the day positive. And that I got from my mom because she went through so much, like living through the depression and then raised me as a single mother. And she never complained through all of it. And she always woke up happy. And I just think if everybody can wake up happy and just try for part of your day, it just really can change not just you, but everybody around you. What's it like to be a woman in the entertainment industry now? I love it. I think it's great. I think that the opportunities for young women today are endless. We have 
have, I think, 80% women working at our company. And I also feel like that's relevant for women now, and it was back then. Like, if you're the best person for the job, it shouldn't matter if your race, your gender, anything like that. The, the, all the buzz surrounding all the sexual harassment scandals, are people shaken up about that, expecting to hear more? I'm sure there'll be more, because I don't think it's tipped a lot of the other industries outside of entertainment right now. But for me, what I hope is that it changes the culture, and that people just now understand how disrespectful and how wrong it's been over the years. And I have so much respect for the women that have come out because I do know how hard that is. Time now for your secrets. My name is Constance Schwartz, co-founder and partner of Smack Entertainment, and my money secret is to be authentic to yourself at all times. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring women leaders and their success stories. Subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.